This paper is a version of uh, a chapter of the book that I'm presently working on that Father Andrew just mentioned, uh, tentatively, tentatively titled uh, The Trinitarian Mysteries of Christ's Life in Thomas Aquinas. And in large measure, I think this subject, this paper, can stand alone, but there are at least two helpful points to recall at the outset, which are drawn from other parts of the project that I'm currently working on and uh, that I thought I should uh, add as a kind of preface just to sort of set the stage for what I'm about to say about Christ's prayer. The two points are these. First, that I would contend that in light of Aquinas, the incarnation is best thought of as the visible mission of the eternal Son, such that the humanity of Christ makes present and manifests what is proper to the Son. That means that in virtue of the hypostatic union, Christ's humanity is marked or shaped by and always bears within it the unique personal mode of being and acting of the divine Son. So Aquinas understands Christ as man to be from the Father and always oriented to the Father. So that's the first point. The second point is this. The visible mission of the Son in the Incarnation is necessarily accompanied by the invisible mission of the Holy Spirit to Christ's humanity. The created effect according to which the Spirit is present in person in Christ's humanity is, according to Aquinas, Christ's perfect charity, or more generally, Christ's habitual grace. So this means that for Aquinas, speaking about Christ's charity is just a way to speak about the Holy Spirit's presence and activity in Christ's humanity and vice versa. Okay, so with these two prefatory points, let's now turn to the specific theme of this paper, which is Christ's prayer and the Trinity. In a capital passage, the letter to the Hebrews gives Christ's prayer a central place in the dispensation of salvation. So listen to Hebrews 5, 7 to 10, a passage I'm sure you all know well. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard for his godly fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Hebrews depicts Christ's prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears as an intrinsic part of his redeeming work. Indeed, from this perspective, one might even wonder whether the entire passion, death, and resurrection of Christ might not be thought of in the category of his priestly prayers and supplications. In fact, St. Thomas Aquinas reads this passage from Hebrews in just this way. I'll return to this at the end of the paper, but I mention it here at the outset because it illustrates a foundational principle of Aquinas' Christology that he underlines repeatedly everything in the life of Christ, all that he does and suffers, omnia acta et passa, 
are salvific for us. This means that everything that Christ does is revelatory of God and is a part of the mystery of salvation and therefore is of intrinsic interest and importance for the theologian. And this is especially true of Christ's prayer. It is a key theme for both Christology and soteriology. What is more, Aquinas consistently underlines a Trinitarian dimension to Christ's prayer. Just as the mystery of Christ is Trinitarian, according to Aquinas, so is the mystery of our salvation, and we encounter this in microcosm in Christ's prayer. And it's this that I want to focus on in this paper. So in addition to the intrinsic interest of this theme, there are, I think, two additional reasons for examining it. First, some students of Aquinas mistakenly believe that a good Thomist should hold that Christ as man prays to the whole trinity. In my view, this is a serious mistake that does not take seriously enough that Jesus, even as man, speaks as the divine son. But second, on the other end of the spectrum, the opposite side of this question, some contemporary theologians view Christ's prayer as an intra-Trinitarian event, or even as a window into the inner conversation between the divine persons in God. And they see the Son obeying the Father and petitioning the Father at a distance, not only as man, but perhaps also even as God in his divinity. And this too leads to what I would consider to be a mistaken understanding of what is revealed in the mystery of Christ's prayer. And because Christ's prayer is intricately bound up with how Jesus offers up a spiritual sacrifice for the salvation of the world, the stakes involved in this question are quite high indeed. Well, Aquinas has quite a bit to say in the Summa Theologiae about Christ's prayer. I think the richest text is found in his commentary on John 11, which is uh, the account of the raising of Lazarus. So the main elements of the Gospel account are familiar uh, to all of us. Jesus, troubled in spirit, comes to the tomb of Lazarus and commands that the stone be rolled away. Then, lifting up his eyes, the Gospel says, he prays, Father, I give you thanks because you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I say this for the sake of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. St. Thomas's exegesis of this passage offers a fascinating Trinitarian account of Christ's prayer. Okay, so I'm now going to proceed. I have three parts or three points to make uh, from, from this point forward. First, uh, I'll draw on Aquinas's account of prayer in general to understand how Christ's prayer is both interior and exterior. Then the second point, I'll discuss how Aquinas sees Christ's prayer as directed specifically to the Father. And third, I'll examine how Christ's prayer is part of divine revelation. So the first point, or the first part, Christ's prayer interior and exterior. So Aquinas begins examining this gospel passage, John 11, and the prayer before Lazarus's tomb, by noting the mode of Christ's prayer, which he derives from Jesus's physical gesture. He lifts up his eyes, the gospel says. So this is text A 
on your handout. His fitting mode of praying is set forth when it says, raising up his eyes. That is, Christ raised up his understanding, directing it through prayer to the Father on high. So Jesus' visible gesture, raising up his eyes, reveals the mode of his prayer. So in itself, this prayer is interior. It's the hidden elevation of his human intellect to God. He raised up his understanding, Aquinas says. It's an intentional act of Christ's humanity. It suggests not only that Jesus passively receives the beatific vision in his human intellect, but also that he actively elevates and fixes the eye of his mind on this perfect beholding. So that's actually interesting, especially if we step back and think about the beatific vision. It's not for Aquinas simply passive, it's also active. And Aquinas designates this in Trinitarian terms. The Father is the object, so to speak, of Christ's intellectual gaze as he, quote, directs it through prayer to the Father on high. Also for Aquinas, Christ's prayer is constant. Thomas does not mean that with this exterior gesture, standing before Christ's tomb, Jesus begins to raise his intellect to where it was previously, uh, where it was not previously. Because his human intellect has the beatific, beatific vision from the first moment of his human existence, it cannot move from potency to act in its union with God. I won't read it, but this is text B, where on your handout, where Aquinas explains that his human intellect, the human intellect of Jesus, is always fully actual. So for Thomas, Christ's beatific vision is neither static nor a state. It's rather dynamic, perfectly actual, always rising up to God. So that is, as man, Jesus prays always. He is always interiorly beholding the Father. So when St. Thomas says that standing before Lazarus' tomb, Christ raises up his eyes, he means that by this exterior visible gesture, Jesus makes known the continuous and uninterrupted interior action by which he raises his understanding to the Father on high. Now, in addition to this, Christ's human will is always conformed to the Father's divine will. And this is another way to account for how Christ's prayer is unceasing. Since, as Aquinas says, Christ's will by itself has the force of prayer before the Father. So as man, Jesus is constantly, always desiring our salvation and incessantly presenting to the Father his human supplications for the world he has been sent to save. Prayer to the Father characterizes every moment and every action of Christ as man, whether or not he manifests it exteriorly by his words or his gestures. Now we could go further. Because of the unity of wills in Christ, his prayer is a means by which human nature enters fully into God's plan of salvation as the conjoined instrument of the person of the word. 
That is to say, Jesus prays as man, and this is drawn from Aquinas' theology of prayer. Jesus prays as man not to change God's will, but as an instrument through which God is accomplishing the plan of salvation. In other words, the need for Christ's prayer is not on, on the side of God. God does not need Jesus' prayer. Rather, God divinely ordains that the God-man would save us through his prayer. So the purpose of that prayer is precisely to unfold the logic of the Incarnation, that God would elevate human nature to the supreme dignity of being joined to the Word in person and thus becoming the instrument through which the world is redeemed. So this is in harmony with Aquinas' teaching on prayer in general, that prayer is a privileged participation in God's providential plan of salvation. Prayer is not about changing God's mind, but is rather about God granting us the grace of coming to will his plan and even affording us the dignity of being secondary causes in his saving work. Okay, that's part one. Now to the second point, part two. And this, I would say, is the, the heart of the Trinitarian mystery, which is that Christ prays to the Father. So Aquinas, in his commentary on this text from John 11, next considers the words of Christ's prayer before Lazarus' tomb. Father, I give you thanks because you have heard me. Does Jesus say this as God or only as man? Does Christ direct this prayer to the Father alone, to the Godhead in general, or even to himself as God? In what sense is this a prayer of the Son? Or to frame the question slightly differently, does Christ's prayer operate purely on the axis of his two natures, God and man? Or does it also have an interpersonal Trinitarian dimension, Father-Son? St. Thomas acknowledges the complexity of these questions and the difficulties arising from some of his patristic sources. So he's working in the John Commentary with commentaries that he's uh, received or homilies that he's received from church fathers, and he's trying to make sense of them. So this is text C on your handout. If this is expounded of Christ as man, there is no difficulty, for Christ was thus less than the Father, as man that is, and in this way it befitted him to pray to the Father and to be heard by him. If, however, this is expounded of Christ as God, as Chrysostom wants to do, then this statement poses a difficulty, for neither to pray nor to be heard befits him in this way, but rather to hear the prayers of others. Thomas begins at the level of Christ's two natures. As man, Christ is less than the Father and can both pray and be heard. As God, he does not pray, but rather answers prayers. But the authority of St. John Chrysostom pushes Thomas to explain how to understand Christ's words if he was speaking as God. 
And for this, Aquinas calls on the resources of his speculative Trinitarian theology to speak of the distinction of persons in God in light of the unity of their nature and hence their unity of will. So this is text D, which is just a continuation of that same uh, commentary. It must therefore be said that someone is heard when his will is fulfilled. Therefore, since the will of the Father and of the Son is the same, whatever the Father, whenever the Father fulfills his will, he fulfills the will of the Son. Therefore, the Son, as the Word says, because you have heard me, that is, you have done those things that were to be done in your word, for he spoke and they were accomplished. St. Thomas maintains that Christ does not pray as God, yet there is a qualified sense in which the Son is heard, speaking as God, as it were, insofar as the one divine will is possessed in different modes by the Father and the Son. Now Aquinas is careful here to avoid any hint that there might be a kind of conversation in the inner life of the Trinity. Uh, notwithstanding the views of some contemporary theologians. So here I would add an important footnote. According to Aquinas, there is no back and forth between the Father and the Son in this conversational sense. The Father eternally speaks only one word, who is his only begotten Son. And that word contains all that is in the Father. And there is nothing in that word that is not from the Father. So there is no intra-Trinitarian speaking beyond this one perfect word, just as there is no intra-Trinitarian loving beyond the spiration of the Holy Spirit, who is love in person. The Son simply expresses who the Father is as spoken by the Father. Or you might think of it in another way, what could the Son say that wouldn't come from the Father? If you were to say that there was something in the Son that didn't come from the Father, you would be in trouble, I think Aquinas would think. So aside from these two notional acts of the speaking of the Word, or the begetting of the Word, and the spiration of the Spirit, that is, these are acts that give rise to a personal distinction in God, all else is, in an absolute sense, common to all three persons, Aquinas holds. And to say otherwise would entail grave dangers for Trinitarian faith on Aquinas' view, because it would suggest that there is something in the Son which is not simply from the Father, or that the Son has some sort of notional act of willing that is independent of or has its origins apart from the Father. In contrast, Aquinas insists that the Son's only notional act, and there is only one of the Son, is to breathe forth the Holy Spirit, something that he does with the Father, just as he receives this notional power from the Father. Okay, end of footnote. An important footnote. To return to the main thread of my argument, because the Son possesses the one divine will from the Father, one could say that the Father fulfills or accomplishes what the Son wills inasmuch as whatever is in the Son's divine will to be done has its origin 
in the Father and is also accomplished by the Father in and through his word. Or to put this another way, it's true that the Father fulfills and accomplishes what the Son wills as God, but of course, not as if the Father were acting separately or were receiving an assignment from the Son. The Father acts inseparably with the Son, always through his Son, willing this with the Son, and the Son's divine will itself is from the Father and is numerically identical with the Father's own will. So in other words, Aquinas is, is using his distinctions to try and account for how to understand what Jesus might what it might mean to say that Jesus as God is speaking about the Father hearing his will, uh, which he just works out in terms of the uh, these intra-Trinitarian relations. So considering this in light of what Aquinas says elsewhere about whether a divine person can pray, we can thus discern two key criteria that govern Christ's prayer in general. The first and most important is based on the distinction of natures in Christ. Christ only prays as man, not as God, according to Aquinas, because prayer necessarily implies that the one praying is subject to another. So this is a quote from Aquinas, prayer is an act of reason through which someone superior is besought. Since Christ as God is absolutely equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit, he does not pray as God. So another quote from Aquinas, it does not belong to Christ as God to pray, nor to obey, nor to do anything that hints at inferiority or that pertains to a diversity of wills. As Aquinas notes in the Prima Pars of the Summa, if we say that Christ as God obeys the Father, hears the Father, or is taught by the Father, we simply mean that the Son is eternally begotten by the Father. It's just another way of expressing that truth. So the Son possesses, in fact he is, the one divine nature as received from the Father. He has numerically the same power and will with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And it's incompatible, Aquinas thinks, with this central Trinitarian truth to say that Christ prays as God. Yet, he then says, Christ as man was less than the Father, and in this way it befit him to pray the Father and to be heard with him, as we saw Aquinas saying just a moment ago in the quotation I read a minute ago. And the theological root of this affirmation is Christ's assumption of a human nature. So the Son, in assuming a human nature, assumes what is proper to that nature, and this includes being subject to the Father, and thus being capable of praying to the Father. Even so, Aquinas issues an important caution. Another quotation, not on your handout. It's not to be understood, simply speaking, that Christ is subject to the Father. So simply speaking, Christ is not subject to the Father, but only with respect to his human nature. It is best to add this qualification to avoid the error of Arius, who claimed the Son to be less than the Father. End of the quotation. So for Aquinas, nothing less than the Son's full divinity is at stake in how we formulate this. So that's the first aspect or criterion of Christ's prayer. He prays as man. 
and we have to add that qualification as man. The second criterion of Aquinas is less often noted. It's not concerning the distinction of natures. It's based on the distinction between the one who prays and the one who is besought. And here's where the Trinitarian dimension enters into the picture. So Aquinas writes, prayer requires a distinction between the one praying and the one prayed to, because no one asks anything from himself. Okay, fair, fairly simple, straightforward point. Prayer, like every action, is not the act of a nature, but of a person performed in virtue of a nature. So it's not enough that there be a distinction of natures, that the nature of the one who prays be subordinate to that of the one besought. There also must be a distinction of subjects or of persons. The one who prays and the one to whom prayer is made. This means that properly speaking, Christ does not, as man, pray to himself as God. As before, the stakes here are high, according to Aquinas. If one were to claim that Christ as man prays to the Son as God, one might seem to posit a distinction of subjects and thus of persons. Christ as man now might seem to be personally distinct from the divine Son, and that sounds like the Nestorian error condemned by the Council of Ephesus. There are nonetheless some who claim that, according to the mind of Aquinas, Christ as man prays to the whole trinity, even though they admit that Aquinas never explicitly says this. So there's a 2012 article in the Thomist making this claim, and no less an authority than Father Jean-Pierre Torrell uh, regards Christ's prayer as addressing the whole trinity. When Jesus verbally addresses the Father, according to Torrell, we should read that as a special appropriation, but not a proper mode of address. So for Torrell's picture there, Jesus speaking to the Father uh, says Father just by, by appropriation, not properly speaking addressing the Father. It seems to me, however, that it's not by accident that St. Thomas himself never says things like this. Aquinas was a magister in sacra pagina, and so he's also always careful to follow the usage of scripture itself. Like the New Testament, he only ever says that Jesus, as man, prays to the Father, or less frequently, he sometimes says Jesus prays to God. Aquinas, I think, is quite aware of, of the limits of our knowledge of the inner life of Christ and of the Trinity, and so he doesn't pretend to know more than scripture reveals. And what is more, to claim that Jesus prays to the whole Trinity, it seems to me, strikes a note very dissonant with Aquinas' whole Christology. It's fundamental for Aquinas that all of Christ's acts and his very human nature itself share in the filial mode that marks the Son's personal being or essay. That's something that I argue for elsewhere. That is, the hypostatic union gives Christ's humanity a surpassing and utterly unique participation in the Son's relation to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. 
Christ is only one person, the Son of God, and there is only one filiation in Christ, the relation of the Divine Son to the Father. And Christ's prayer as man to the Father is an expression of this, this filial mode. Insofar as Christ, so this is a quote from, from Aquinas, insofar as Christ is from another, it belongs to him to pray to the Father, which demonstrates his origin in the Father. End of quotation. So to say that Christ's prayer as man, if you were to say that Christ's prayer as man is directed to the Trinity as a whole, you would obscure what Aquinas cherishes as one of the central truths of the Incarnation, the visible mission of the Son, which makes the Son present in a new way, necessarily includes and manifests his personal relation to the Father, that he is from the Father. And this is a point that Aquinas repeatedly makes about Christ's prayer. It's especially when Jesus prays that he shows that he is sent by the Father. This is text E. Christ, he prayed, not for himself, but for our good, in order to show himself to be from another, and that what he had, he had from another. Therefore, he says, the Son cannot do anything from himself, and from myself I do nothing. Christ's prayer manifests his mission, disclosing who he really is. It's not a merely verbal revelation, as Rahner uh, criticizes Aquinas for, for speaking about the Trinity as a verbal revelation. It, I don't think it is for Aquinas. As if Christ spoke words about his Father to instruct us, while his humanity was in fact addressing all three divine persons. No, rather, his prayer shows how his humanity is drawn into and participates in his filial relation to the Father. Or as Aquinas expresses it more succinctly, it shows him to be from another. Now, our prayer, it is true, mounts to the whole Trinity. But in us, a human nature is not hypostatically united to the Son. So there's an analogy and also a distinction between our prayer and Christ's prayer. So, for example, Aquinas points out that when Christ prays, he addresses the Father according to a different relation than we have. And this is text F. He says, my Father, because he is uniquely the Son, while we are sons by adoption. I ascend to my Father and your Father, as if to say, mine in one way, yours in another. So in short, Christ's prayer has a unique personal dimension. It is from a person, and it is directed to a person. And moreover, in virtue of the hypostatic union, there always remains something irreducible in Christ's prayer that pertains to the distinction of persons. It's the prayer of the Son in his human nature, an action, a human action, with a unique filial mode, and so it has a unique, proper, and irreducible relation to the Father. So properly speaking, the Son as man does not direct his prayer to himself, I would contend, 
or to the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from him, but only to the Father, from whom he proceeds and by whom he was sent. Okay, that's concluding my second point. That's the main part of the paper. Now, just a third point, which I'm just going to really briefly summarize uh, in, in the interest of time. This is Christ's prayer as revelation and instruction. There are many occasions in the Gospels when Christ prays in a way visible to others. He goes up a mountain to pray, or in the case of the prayer before Lazarus' tomb, he lifts up his eyes and speaks aloud to the Father. Strictly speaking, Jesus does not need to make these visible acts and gestures. That is, to accomplish what he wanted to do, St. Thomas explains that as God, Jesus could always do whatever he willed. Quote, nonetheless, one and the same person existing as God and as man, he willed to offer prayer to the Father, not as if he were powerless, but for our instruction. So Christ's prayer is a kind of revelation, his exterior prayer. In fact, Aquinas identifies three things that Jesus teaches us by these visible or audible acts of prayer. The first and most important is that in his prayer, he unveils to us his relation to the Father. We've already sort of gone over this. This is text G, and uh, I'll just skip over that. Uh, he's basically saying Jesus speaks uh, on account of those who are, who are present in order that they would know he's from the Father. And here Aquinas' reasoning is straightforward. Jesus' prayer is rooted in his mission and therefore is ordered to the disclosure of his eternal procession from the Father. And so it's, in a way, a privileged locus for Trinitarian theology. As Jesus says in John's Gospel, he lets us see him praying so that we would believe that the Father sent him. And in a way, this is a summary of the whole dispensation of salvation. This is text H, so I will read this. Christ willed especially through this action to demonstrate that he was not apart from the Father, but he recognized him as his principle. So he added that they would believe that you sent me. This is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And then quotation from Galatians 4.4. And in saying this, he sets down the usefulness of this prayer. So the Son comes into the world as man so that by his actions in a human nature he would manifest to us his true identity as the divine Son and bringing us to believe in him and in the Father who sent him by giving us the Holy Spirit who makes us adopted sons and daughters, he would thus bestow on us a share in his eternal life. So Christ's prayer manifests who he is and from whom he is and so must be counted among the most important of his revelations. That's the first dimension of Christ's prayer with respect to our instruction. The second is this. He prays, Aquinas says, in order to give us an example. So Aquinas uses the term exemplum. He has in mind something more robust, I think, than what is conveyed by our English word example. He means that Jesus is the pattern, the model, the standard for us to imitate. And what is more, in his prayer, Christ serves as the human exemplar, according to which we, in our prayer, enter into the communion of the triune life. So 
as we've already talked about, Jesus, as the word incarnate, prays to the Father differently than we do. And his prayer reflects this. We are adopted sons and daughters insofar as we receive a likeness of Christ's natural sonship. And the incarnate son is the exemplar to whom we are conformed. So when Jesus prays, then, he is the pattern of our recreation in grace, by which our minds, like his, can be raised up and directed to the Father. And when he sends us the Holy Spirit, we are conformed to this exemplar and become able to pray as the Father's adopted sons and daughters. So, this is St. Paul. The Father gives us to say Abba, or the, the Spirit gives us to say Abba, Father. So our prayer is distinct but analogous to Christ's, just as our adopted sonship is distinct from but analogous to his natural sonship. We pray to the Father through the Son and in the Holy Spirit. So a very nice quotation from Aquinas to sort of summarize this. Christ bringing us back to the Father as unto the principle without a principle, teaches us to direct our prayers to the Father through the Son. Time doesn't permit me to enter into Christ's tears at Lazarus's tomb, or into Christ's prayer as manifesting the truth and distinctness of his human will, and how his tears are a kind of prayer, According to Aquinas, both at Lazarus' tomb and also in his passion, think about his tears in the Garden of Gethsemane, suffice it to say that Christ's prayer ultimately is an aspect of the mediation of his priesthood. So he's making priestly prayers as men. And thus it's an aspect of his sacrificial self-offering for the salvation of the world. This is just how Aquinas interprets Hebrews 5, the passage we started with. So, quotes from Aquinas. The spiritual sacrifice which Christ offered was precisely prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, that is, fervent affection and suffering. The priesthood of Christ is ordained to this spiritual sacrifice, Thomas writes. In a certain sense, then, the cross of Christ is rightly regarded as the exterior sacrifice expressing the interior devotion and prayer of Christ's soul. So Jesus wins our salvation by his prayer, a prayer made with perfect charity and in the midst of terrible suffering. This gives a new perspective on Christ's prayer, on his priesthood, and on his passion, Christ worked out our salvation through his priestly prayers to the Father, offered as man, asking that the Father would give him victory over death, and through him and his victory, eternal salvation to all who obey him. Thank you.